Hello and welcome to the sexy 16th episode. What? <laughs> what I said, this is too easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, it's 16. We're, we're not gonna have you the have opportunity. <laughs> Six people are always talking about sixteen ein. Oh. <laughs> I've never figured out what ein is, but <laughs> not even funny. Um not, not funny. I laugh. <laughs> right. That's not evidence of it being funny. But yes, of course, this is the sixteenth episode of Got the Runs. It's called Got the Runs, right? It is still, well, you know, unless we make an executive decision uh, down the line here somewhere. That's never going to happen. Anyways, this is, of course, the only podcast with all of the sexual chemistry of a vampire and a witch. (laughs) And today we are discussing the first comic, actually, that I have read, which is... Really? You have read it before. I wasn't sure. I believe I'd, I've read all of the first volume of this, but we're talking about Runaways. It's part of our mini series on Brian K. Vaughn. We are out of the the last manhole, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, we did go sixty deep. <laughs> Not the last man. I've heard of Six Underground, the Ryan Reynolds movie, but sixty deep. I haven't heard of that. What is that? It's a Netflix movie. Is I believe it's directed by Michael Bay. Oh, Six Underground. Yeah. What did I you think? You said I said Six Hundred Grounds. Also, isn't that a, a Murky Merc film? No, it's a Ryan Reynolds picture. You're thinking of Spencer Confidential, <laughs> which I believe is directed by the great Peter Berg. It is. Oh, I'm on fire today. Peter Berg, of course, director of Friday Night Lights, Hancock, Battleship. <laughs> He's a very good. What a, uh, what a repertoire. He has a very good filmography. It's John f- Carter? Did he do John Carter? No, John Carter was... I was literally one, one just... One day I'm going to stand on this podcast for John Carter, which is... Have you seen John movie. Carter? I oh. saw John Carter in theaters and had a blast. <laughs> I've heard... I, it's a real... That must be good. Um, but actually, I was literally just talking about John Carter with someone last night. A movie that cost $260 yeah. million. Dollars <laughs> and was directed, of course, by Andrew Stanton, the director of... Finding Nemo and Wally oh, in his first live-action effort. It's a good movie. I liked it a lot. Haven't seen it, admittedly, in 10 years, question mark, but... Uh, it's gotta be good. Did you know that Men in Black 3 cost $215 million? I mean, I believe it. I watched Men in Black 2 the other day. No good. The conversion of Josh Brolin to Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> it's expensive technology. A la Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Oh, me. But yeah, Anyways, so we are. Yeah, certainly. Uh, what's the kingdom again? Oh, with Jamie Foxx. That's got to be good, right? I don't just know. A, maybe. I used just to see Kingdom of Heaven a lot. Of course. Did you ever actually see Kingdom of Heaven? I got like probably like half an hour in and got really bored. Apparently, the director's cut is a lot better. But... Yeah, I've heard the director's cut kind of saves the movie. Also, another speaking of historical epics that I've heard were saved by the director's cut Alexander. You ever seen that? No. Heard it's good. Same. <laughs> Anyways, right away. <laughs> yes, we're going back in time here. So, why the Men last man? <laughs> Someone called Pitbull. I get it. The green onion sample queued up. <laughs> Wait, back in time to samples green onions? It's not. Uh, it's it's not Love called... Strange. Oh, wait. 
that's right. <laughs> this is so insane. Nobody is... first class, of course, had a great Creonians poll. But, uh... no, nobody is listening to this. Uh, so, yeah, so we... This is an interesting... Uh, maybe, should we have done, like, it more chronologically, where, like, we did a Y-Ep, and like then we did... And, forth a little bit. and then we did a Runaways up, and then we did a Y-Ep, like that? I, I don't know. I think it's easier to talk about them in like a, a big picture way to do them just like in sequence, but it's true. It does require some like career hopping, especially when you have a guy like BKV who is going to be writing like four very popular books at the same time. Yeah. And I guess it'll become more of a problem, I guess, when we get into people who had really long runs on one book. Yeah. Although, although 60 issues about, is pretty long. Yeah. And we have discussed strategies for getting around some of those, uh, those things. Yes, no, uh, no spoilies. So yeah, so it's the I can never. What's the deal again with why their dated weird comics are? Oh, I, it's like some. It's like a magazine publishing thing. Right. I, I, like yeah, the the date that's on the cover is never the date that like the month that it actually came out. Right, but it's usually what like three months ahead. Something like that. So when it says that. Why the Last Man was published from September 2002 to March 2008. Those are the real dates, Those right? Those are the real dates, yes. Okay, okay. So, March 2008 is when Why the Last Man ends. So that's where we were at then, and now we go. To we're, we're all 2003. like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing Pink Floyd's money. <laughs> oh, I thought you were doing a Seinfeld face. <laughs> I was trying to do green onions, but then I realized I don't quite know how green onions goes and started doing. It's very organ heavy. The famous seven four baseline to Pink Floyd's money. Okay, runaways. Right so I just, okay. I just need to point out that I briefly brought, dropped into the voice of Alec Baldwin introducing Ali on Saturday Night Live in a Stars form. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, green onions. Oh. <laughs> Runaways. So much to say about this weird comic. This is July 2003 now, so I'm confused. Oh, uh, the, never mind. Cover? I'm just Wikipedia hopping here. I'm not. I, I am looking at the Comic Con sales charts, and the first issue of Runaways charts in April 2003. And no spoilies, but how are we looking? Uh, you know, 26th thou. Number 84 on the month for number one. Whew. <sighs> Gotta juice those numbs. Anyways. Well, as we will discuss, it uh, performs better in the uh, collected edition. Market. Yes, of course. Yes, so this is this is actually, it's once again credited as a co-creation, the same as Why the Last Man, created by Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona, who is the penciler for, I think, the is it? The entire run. Except two. There are at least two issues. The Cloak and Dagger issues. Oh, yeah. Uh, wait, is that true? Yes, it's Takeshi Miyazawa. Oh, yes, now, of course, my boy. Now I'm the guru. <laughs> Your boy. We'll yeah, talk about yeah. <laughs> We will talk about it. We'll talk about Takeshi Miyazawa. Um, yeah, so it, it came out. This is... I'm trying to sort of parse exactly how this came about. because So it's part of this tsunami imprint. Yeah. Which Marvel starts in 2003. And you go ahead. My So my theory is it's hard to find information for like until relatively recently when comic books like media became more of a thing and 
you would get like announcements about creators launching new titles and interviews with them a while in advance. It's hard to find stuff from like this era about how a book came about. But my theory is, so they had this Marvel Tsunami line, which they launched because they were like, hmm, manga seems to be the new hotness. The kids, <laughs> kids mm, love manga. these, <laughs> these uh, Japanese uh, artists, these Japanese comics. We want something that is going to capture that audience. Primarily, it seems to me, through the aesthetic. Like, they wanted to get the manga, the manga aesthetic onto books that uh, otherwise didn't really bear any, any similarities, as far as I can tell, to, like, manga storytelling. And so they launched nine titles, of which BKV wrote two, Runaways and Mystique. Uh, and then Sean McKeever, uh, who is a guy I really like, wrote two as well, Sentinel, which is about, like, a kid who refurbishes a sentinel and reprograms it to be like a defender of mutants oh. and young and humans, which is a hidden gem book that I really enjoy. And then I think the other ones were human torch, Namor, Emma Frost. I have a list here. That's seven. There were a couple more. Oh, uh, there was like a new X-Men book featuring like the, the original new X-Men lineup, but like kind of youngish. <laughs> There's a new mutants, yes. Yeah. Um, did you already mention Venom? I did not. I did not <laughs> mention Venom, the Eminem hit single. Um, <laughs> I believe the title of the song is Venom, parenthetical, music from the motion picture. <laughs> you do love to see it. Uh, here is what marvel.fandom.com <laughs> has to say about Tsunami. It was a failed imprint of Marvel Comics founded in 2003. Marvel's goal was to create comic books that would appeal to manga readers. Other than the art, the titles shared little in common. <laughs> yeah, that's what it seemed. That's what I why I wanted to ask you because so a I didn't realize that Sentinel was also that's an original idea, right? Like obviously yeah, it's using. Yeah. I think uh, yeah it, yeah it is. And so so other I thought it was only Runaways that was like the a piece of original, which it kind of is. Like it's the only whole sort of whole cloth original ip yeah it so yeah um runaways i think is the only one that exclusively features characters that are appearing for the first time um sentinel is an original concept and the main character is a new character and uh in humans also featured it like the, the main cast was primarily new creations yeah and then and so it seemed yes as you said it was mostly a failure it seems like yeah, None of most them of the lasted. series got cancelled at 12. Yeah. I think Runaways was the longest running because it made it to 18. And Runaways and Venom both made it to 18. Yeah. I like that you still put a little Venom. <laughs> <laughs> venom. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Got a little poison dripping off it. <laughs> you, you vamp for Venom. I'm just going to look at some Venom lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> you do that. Uh, yeah, so... It's interesting that they even call it an imprint because it's almost like I looked at the covers and so first of all, it's ostensibly trying to get like the manga demographic. I don't really feel that the like aesthetic of the books is very manga-ish, especially no. the cover art. Like there's only a few that really to me seem like, oh, if I was like 14 years old looking at like a shelf of books... I might look at that and be like, huh, interesting. This kind of looks like, you know, my manga of choice in 2003. <laughs> this looks like my manga. Yasha, question mark. 
what are the kids reading these days? <laughs> Twenty well, years those, ago, those days, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually I did think that some of the cover art for Runaways did look a little bit maybe manga inspired. Like I think the sort of the idea of like having like a, a lot of manga, I feel like especially like the Tankobon, which is like the digest size volumes, like. They have pretty, they usually have like pretty stark backgrounds and then we'll just have like a single character posing, which is most of what you get for like the first, at least the first like six issues or so. Like something like issue number two, where it's just Alex sort of standing there on a white background with some stuff behind him. Like that is Mm. pretty similar to what I would say a manga volume looks like. Right. But yes, I I, I was... I'm going to send you a link here that has the the um, covers for the number one issues of all nine titles. And some of them, like, Namor has a certain sort of, like, by shoujo energy. <laughs> Human Torch definitely has, like, a lot of stylization that I, I think you could probably say is, like, manga-influenced, but I wouldn't ever, like, confuse it for manga art. Oh, Emma Frost, please. Yeah, Emma, Emma Frost brought to you by Greg, the horniest man in comics horn. Um... <laughs> That's a, that's a pretty standard Greg Horn cover, TBH. Emma Frost, I believe, was only labeled Tsunami. Was was it that it only lasted one issue, or was it only labeled? It was only labeled Tsunami on the first issue. So the branding of it is, like, there's this kind of, like, flare behind the Marvel logo and, like, the number and the rating on it. it that is, I guess, supposed right. to, like, maybe it's be like kind a of reminiscent of... I was thinking a wave, because it's a Tsunami. But... And then they have like, like you no, know, it does not. And then they have like this bar that runs behind the the like title logo, some of which have like sort of stylizations in the background, and some of which do not. And then that's like kind of it as far as visual signifiers. It doesn't say tsunami on the cover anywhere or anything yeah. like that. Also, like it's called tsunami. Doesn't <laughs> doesn't that seem a little problematic? <laughs> It's not great, especially because, like... One year after. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna, I wasn't sure about the exact timeline, but I was like, there was a, an extremely catastrophic tsunami very close to this time. I believe it was 2004. So pretty much around the time these comics are wrapping up. Yeah. Anywho. Anywho. Like I said, uh, the I feel like the idea behind it, insofar as, like, it shows a certain canniness that they were like, there's an audience out there that is reading comics. They're just not reading our comics. And how can we tap into that audience? But the like follow through and execution seems like, well, let's, let's slap some art on the cover that is like kind of manga esque and hope that like that does it. Yes. And I like, I, I was, I think also, I mean, at least definitely like in stuff like Sentinel and new mutants and this book, like, the focus on younger characters. Yeah, and like even Namor, who traditionally is drawn with like a severe widow's peak, uh, <laughs> appears to have like, like I said, gotten a bit of the Baishojo treatment. He's looking very dreamy. His hair is flowing in the water. I don't think you're using that word correctly. What, Baishojo? Yeah, I believe it's it would be Baishonen. Baishojo, literally beautiful girl. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're thinking of Bai Shonen. Maybe I am. Oh, it's because uh, I'm getting it confused because... Because uh, shoujo manga is marketed towards girls. That and also because a uh, like collectibles manufacturer that I buy from uh, occasionally, <laughs> Kobubukuya. You buy um, shoujo? No. <laughs> they did a line that was called the Bai Shoujo line that uh, featured like similarly like manga interpretations of popular characters. And they did. Oh no! But those were called by Shonen. So yeah, it, it was by Shonen. <laughs> there was a. They made one that is like the only comics accurate uh, statue of Red Robin from the era where he had like the cowl, right. like the Kingdom Come design that I yeah. hunted for for a long time and was never able to get. <laughs> was it because you were typing in the wrong name? No, no, time? no. Just like. So there was like a standard version that was him in like the new fifty two costume, and I was like, no, I don't want that. I want, I want the good. I design. want the worst era. Of no, it's, <laughs> it's Tim Drake's best costume. Please at me. Let me look uh, at the new fifty two one real quick. I mean, this one is just Robin. I do like this more. I like the cape design. Um, like the feathers. Yeah, oh, that's cool. No, I can't stand it. Anyways. Getting off track here. Uh, yes, Namor. No, Namor this is, is definitely... this is what the show's about. The cow looks really weird. Is the main thing. No, I like it. If you look at the like original Kingdom Come designs, it was a little more like hooded, like a little a little yeah. bit more evocative of like the shape of a robin's head. Right. That's how I think of it. Certainly. Oh, and it's like it's more like flat in the actual. Yeah, design. it has like kind of like a more beakish like motif you know, different artists have done it differently yeah um i like freaking jim fingers take on it nice Marcus. did you know that there is a bill finger <laughs> you created batman <laughs> yes why would i know that <laughs> what kind of podcast are we running here uh but yeah so i anyways i think the the manga of it all is a little bit overstated Yes, my my yeah, my sort of theory because I did write in my notes what is the manga element here, but like the focus on younger characters and maybe like a little more serialized. Like obviously comics are naturally pretty serialized, but like having like a more direct storyline, which kind of falls off pretty quickly. But it seemed like it was a little more like focused plotting wise, which is usually what you'd see out of a manga. Like there, it's like less about there are arcs, but it feels like there's a little bit more pre-planning and, like, arcs will happen over the course of, like, 20 to 40 chapters rather than being, like, three issues. Yeah. So, anyways, to get back to my, my theory of the genesis of this story, <laughs> or, or of, like, Vaughn coming in, I think, like, he... So, he had wrapped Swamp Thing at this point, obviously, and was starting on um, Y, was, like, probably a few issues into Y at this point. So I think Marvel is probably like, all right, we've got like a Stanhattan Project alumni here who has like done a bit of work for us before. He's coming like he's coming off a book that, you know, didn't didn't do like gangbusters, but kind of like established him as a writer of like young adult characters. And then now he's like the new indie hotness with this story about like this man child. So he's obviously kind of got like a, a certain knack to be like sort of a like voice of a generation type he can connect with the youth yeah exactly so so i think they were basically like this would be a good guy to like bring on board for this sort of like more youth oriented relaunch 
I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of already had Mystique in the in the back pocket, and then were like, also, do you want to do anything else? And he was like, sure, I've got you know these these original characters that I would love to roll out. And then to like speaking to how focused the story feels, I wouldn't be surprised if they went to him and were like, give us like a six issue pitch because we're not like guaranteeing <laughs> anything more than that. Yeah, this is tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think he probably went in with like a very structured six issue plan that was like if it ends there then like there's a bit of a cliffhanger but the like the first storyline is like pretty well wrapped up and it launches these characters out in a way that will let them be like used by other people if they want or like they can just kind of fade out if they need to and then as he was going along they were like all right some of these titles are doing well enough i think every book got 12 so i wouldn't be surprised if they were like we're we're pushing everything up to 12 so like keep going and then you start to get a little bit less, like, like I think numbers 7 to 12 are a little bit more scattershot, and then he goes into, like, the 12 to 18 storyline, which obviously wraps up the, the the whole, like, pride thing that starts with number 1. So, yeah, that's that's my theory. I'm sure it was uh, something to, to that effect. But it's interesting because Vaughn comes in here and is, like I said, kind of, I think, being set up as, like, a voice of a generation guy. And especially, like, after Runaways, I think people thought, like, oh, someone who can write, like, authentic teens, he'll he'll be, like, the guy who writes books for young people. And then, like, his next book is about, like, the mayor of New York. <laughs> um, and, like, lions. And he doesn't really write another book that features, like, young characters again until Paper Girls. Yeah, I was, I was kind of just browsing around his whole oeuvre. And he's not really working on too much other stuff right now right like so he has like he writes some weird sort of like like four issue or one-off i think i think for marvel oh the like the x-men icons stuff yeah yeah but yeah mostly he's just basically working on y at this point and then he starts yeah, it will doing... be like in 2004 i think there's a month where he puts out an issue of y x machina ultimate x-men and runaways so yeah that's like... really when he's like the the like kind of golden child right so this is like basically sort of this is the beginning of him like being a thing <laughs> yeah making making his name and definitely this book contributes to the the sort of like establishment of him because because i think there's like a lot of people who are reading why and then it kind of gets around like oh he's like doing this like weird thing at marvel that's like really you know different from what marvel's usually been doing about these kids like you should check it out and then i think like the the marvel readers who read runaways and like kind of fall in love with the style are like getting told by shop owners like well if you like this you know he's doing like this more mature title at vertigo um, that you know blah 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 the elevator pitch for why which is like an easy sell um so i think i think they kind of cross feed into each other quite a bit and really help establish him as uh, as kind of the it kid right um so let's jump in here Do let's 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 of course turn to your favorite segment uh just what is going on here <laughs> the people's favorite segment please. well yes the, the groundswell of support has been incredible <laughs> getting emails streaming in about how much people love just what is going on here. So in this issue, we're looking at Runaways Volume 1, Number 1. There is a goth girl going shush. She's like, don't make any... Why is she shushing? Oh, I guess because like they have to like keep it a secret. I get, but, yeah, I don't... So 
<laughs> I, yeah. like, I think this is where like the manga inspired thing because it was just like <laughs> what's what's more manga than hey this teenager is kind of sexy <laughs> truly um yeah so i i think that all of the first six covers if i'm not mistaken are basically like character portraits of the main like the core group of six Yes, and most of them are on pretty stark, either black or white backgrounds, with the exception of issue three, where it's Carol, Carolina, yeah, and she and has more like of like a fully fleshed out background, yeah. which is not something she ever does or that she ever looks like. And also, because... it's kind of a spoiler because, like, I think at that <laughs> point her powers have not yet been revealed. <laughs> Anyways, so I wouldn't be surprised if these were done kind of without the context of right. what is actually in the issues and are intended to kind of allude to their various like power sets or skill sets. So her thing is that she has the staff of one, which she can cast any spell once. So I, I kind of thought it was like, there's like a speaking thing, but yeah, still the like, is like, it's not, it's not like you yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like it's alluding to like the limitations on speech that are inherent in her power <laughs> set, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit of a reach, but I, I can see what you're going for here, certainly. Yes, I, th- I imagine that most people are fairly familiar with the, the basic premise of this. Um, there's a group of teenagers. So who, who do we got here? There's Alex... There is Nico, Gertrude, Carolina, Chase, and Molly, and we'll talk about Molly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so okay, let's let's dive right into the reputation that this book developed for Brian K. Vaughn as an authentic writer of teen characters. <laughs> yes, I was a teenager, very close to around this time, <laughs> very close. I would I would have been the same age as Molly when this like issue one came out. <laughs> Molly is a, not a twelve-year-old. Molly, Molly is, like is a written like a five-year-old. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's insane. It is it insane. Is uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Like Gertie, Gert constantly saying like the rents is again. If they, I was a teenager <laughs> at this time and never once heard a real life oh, teenager come on. People call are saying the rents. rents. <laughs> Come on, people are saying the rest. Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of slang being thrown around here. There's a lot of like, yeah, differentiation. Like, I I get that it is true that at that time, one or two years feels like a long time, and like that can result in like a big difference between people, and like you do a lot of maturing in the span of a year, and also like Molly is twelve <laughs> and Gert is fourteen, and the fact that. Molly as like a character who considers herself a peer with the other kids or like would like to be thought of as a peer. Yeah, exactly. As like a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. That's the main thing, which is like, if there was an 11 year old in a group of like 15 and 16 year olds, they would not, they would act less like a kid. Like they would be trying to emulate the other kids and like and molly acts like she is literally a baby like yeah. she says like, like she says sex yeah like. i just keep thinking about like margaret of are you there god it's me margaret i believe is younger than molly <laughs> and right. and i feel like when you compare that portrait of like 
Yeah, so Mar- Margaret is 11 going on 12 in uh, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. And I feel like that... <laughs> I can't believe it's crazy. that I referenced it. I'm just saying, like, that feels to me like so much more of, like, a realized portrait of a girl who is in many ways immature, but also, like, the, the ways in which she approaches that compared to Molly, who is like... I know what you're talking about. S E X. She's like a cartoon character. <laughs> Which she literally is, to be fair. But yes, I know. Yes. The thing is, and it's, I would imagine that it's a tough age to write because, like, it's sort of that dichotomy of maturity and immaturity where it's like they can have very, like, mature outlooks on certain things or, like, they, they sort of can take mature positions but come at them from a place of immaturity in a way. But it's truly, like, she is mostly just comic relief where it's, like, either she is, like, childishly naive or it's, like, the juxtaposition of, like, she's actually strong and she wants to be called Princess Powerful. Yeah, (laughs) she certainly does. I feel that the reputation that this book has for being, like, a book that I don't, I don't know. I just can't be, imagine being a teenager and reading this and feeling, like, seen or known. No, certainly not. But it, it is, like, it's BKV dialogue. And I, part yeah. of me was like, well, like, who is more, like, performative about their, like, funniness and understanding <laughs> of complexities than, like, 15 and 16-year-olds? So I was like, and, this and almost makes that, sense in a way. Yeah, his voice does really work for me for Gert who I feel like is, a, yeah, a character who, like, has these strong opinions and states them really loudly and, like... Uh, is, wants to is, join the socialists. Wants to join the socialists. I like that, that I think Vaughn, like, understands that she's a kind of obnoxious character and, and his, like, sort of bombastic, in some ways, style really works for her. Yeah, it, it, her character almost reminds me of, like, I know that... Ghost World is a comic as well, but like of like Thora Birch and Ghost World, where it's like you're smart enough to like be an asshole, but you're not smart enough to know not to be an asshole. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. But yes, yeah, so these kids uh, hang out together once a year because their parents get together under the guise of like writing checks for charity. <laughs> yeah. We get together and do some charity. <laughs> I think the idea is that they have like a like a foundation of some sort that they do right. like some voting about how they're going to use the the funds or something like that. Yes, and they are all sort of like Illum- they're they're sort of Illuminati-ish they are, in the sense they are that Illuminati. like they're they're like Marvel Universe Illuminati where they represent like Mutants, aliens, time travelers, mad scientists, and business organ- entertainment. Crime. <laughs> <laughs> and who am I forgetting? What am, what am I missing here? Did I say the wizards already? Did you say ninjas? Aren't <laughs> <laughs> no ninjas? Aren't I? Oh, I can never keep track of the parents. So, Carolina's. Okay. Oh, they're aliens. Carolina's parents are aliens. Nico's parents are. But they are they wizards. dress like ninjas. Yeah. Uh, no. No. Molly's parents are mutants, but they dress like ninjas. No, Molly's parents are mutants, but they dress like wizards. In my <laughs> don't opinion, they, don't they? Don't they have like the they mask have, like, the weird, and, like the yes. mesh veil? For some reason, I think of that as a wizard look. I don't know. Anyways, so those three: Alex's parents are organized criminals. <laughs> yes, Alex's dad is just the kingpin. Yeah, 
Chase's parents are mad scientists, and Gert's parents are time travelers. Yes. Yes, that's great. I'm just I'm looking at this thing. Yes, I could I could never keep track of who was whose parents. Like I just sort of had to go with like these are these people. And yeah, the fact that the aliens are dressed like ninjas as a real Oh right. They do they do they have, have like, like full like black yeah, face yeah, yeah. masks. Triple black uh outfits <laughs> going on. Yeah. But yes, the this idea that, that they sort of encompass all the different like fields that one can be yes. involved in, I guess. <laughs> in in super crime. Uh yes. So they the the kids stumble upon them meeting and due to their like weird costumes at first think they're superheroes, but then when they witness them uh sacrificing a, a girl <laughs> performing a blood altar, ritual. Yes, they come to the conclusion instead that they are super villains uh and become the titular runaways seeking to bring their parents down. So I I don't I don't know we're already kind of jumping around a bit but I want to talk right off the bat so we will learn at at the end of issue six that one of the kids is a mole who is still like loyal to the parents and believes in what they're doing and this is before we even know exactly what it is that the parents are doing and that kind of looms over the the intervening twelve issues like I th- I think there's only a couple of issues where it doesn't get mentioned again that one of the kids is a mole. Yeah, it definitely picks up more, like, about, like, halfway. I mean, like, the Teenage Wasteland arc is just sort of, like, a nothing arc, in my opinion. yeah, kind of, like, weird filler. Um, But, yes, but we're jumping around here. Well, but, so I, so what I wanted to get to is, what we eventually learn is that Alex is the mole. He is, like, the, he has kind of been the point of view character to this point. He's, like, the one through whom we first enter the first issue, and has kind of been the primary protagonist as much. Yeah, as they, he's like the de facto leader. Yeah, as much as there can be one in like a, a six-person team book. Uh, do you remember because you've read it before? Like, did, mm. did you remember going into Alex with the mole? And do you remember what your reaction to that was originally? I think I did remember that he was the mole because I was like, oh, it's like I be, because I remembered it being like, oh, like this is a crazy reveal. Which I thought I, I think at the time when I first read it, I was definitely very surprised. I did remember it going in, and I was sort of like trying to like think about it, reading through where it's like, what, like, who am I meant to think is the mole? Because there is a scene where they are like, <laughs> there's basically a whole scene that's specifically set out to be like, maybe Molly could be the mole. Like, she's smarter <laughs> yeah. than she looks. Because it's like, it's so unbelievable that she could possibly be it. <laughs> there is a, uh, a scene in one of the issues that is deliberately set up. And I think the intention throughout is to kind of be like, it could be any of them. Like, I don't think he yes. wants you to think it's any one particular no. of the kids. I think I think that the, the goal is for you to be like, oh man, it could be anybody. Yeah, especially, I mean... I think that, I mean, obviously, like, it, Chase almost feels too obvious because he is sort of, like, the jerk of the group. So yeah. it's like, the jerk is never going to also be the mole because that's not surprising. Yeah, but he also is, like, the one who hates his parents the most. Well, and, and Gertrude as well, like, hates yeah. her parents. But, like, yeah, she hates her parents, but in kind of like a, like, I hate all adults, like, hope I die before I get old kind of way. Yes. Whereas, like, Chase has, you know, we're introduced to Chase via, like, getting Being punched, punched by, his dad. by his dad. Yeah, so so they both feel kind of off the table just based on that. So it's, it's really between yeah. Alex, Carolina, and Nico. 
Yeah, and I my sort of thinking was that it's it's it was sort of trending towards Nico because she is like sort of a little bit unstable and a little bit like, you know, it seems like her motivations are like some of the least clear, which maybe is like, you know, obviously like setting there is a little bit of setup. I didn't write anything specifically down, but I do feel like there are a few moments where it is teased a little. That it's Alex or that it's Nico? Yes, that's Alex. Like, I don't even remember there exactly is, what yeah, the Yeah, like, the thing I always think of is his parents being like, Alex is a strategic genius and master planner. Like, he, he to that point, he, like, hasn't really, he seems to be kind of, like, the powerless one that doesn't really have any of the assets that the other kids do. Like, his superpower was being rich and not having his parents' money, obviously, kind of cuts him off. But then they introduce this idea that he's, like, the master planner. Yeah, and the fact that he doesn't have a code name and doesn't have yeah, any he, powers. He like sort of distinguish can... himself from the other five at various yeah, points. But, but when you read it, it just comes across as, well, he's like the main character, so this is sort of like, he is differentiated in this way, and maybe down the line we'll get to see like him develop some kind of, like, it would, it would be an equally good moment if in issue 18, Nico was the mole, and then Alex suddenly manifested some kind of power to like fight against her as well. Uh, speaking of their code names, Hall of Fame all-time bad code names. <laughs> yes. Do you Which think I... that's supposed to be intentional? Like these are the kinds of names that fifteen-year-olds would come up with for themselves. I absolutely think it must be intentional because they're so crazy they and bad. Are <laughs> truly dreadful. Yes, Gertrude. So we can we can run this down really quickly. So Gertrude, she has a telepathically controlled also. Well, we'll talk about this in a second, but just the powers themselves as well, I want to talk about. and <laughs> they, are, how, they are bizarre. How interesting or exciting they are. So, Gertrude, she has a telepathically linked velociraptor that is, like, genetically modified coming from the future, which they discover a few issues in, mm-hmm. which she names Old Lace yeah. because she names herself Arsenic. Very... Very related. Well, like arsenic and old lace is. Uh... I know they're related to each other, but why is she arsenic? Carolina is an alien whose like metalurg bracelet has been suppressing her powers. She is like kind of like a starfire or a phoenix. Like she's like a being of light yeah. who can like project energy and fly. Yeah. Um, and goes by the code name Lucy in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Truly terrible. <laughs> A four a four word name. <laughs> yeah, I do like that when they have like the vampire who shows up in Teenage Wasteland. He's confused and thinks her name is Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and also like I think it has to be a bit because they're so bad. Um, Chase is who Talk finds back. these like yes, he is named Talkback for no reason other than that he talks back. It's He's unrelated got a smart to. His... Mouth. It's unrelated to his abilities, which are just like he has like fists which can project fire. It seems <sighs> like yes, the fist of gods. I'll I'll save my thoughts on the fist of gods for when we talk about their powers. <laughs> it seems to me like the fist of gods like were were you know, if this was like out an eighty issue series, it seems completely logical that like the fist of gods would develop new ability where it's like I like he they can use so they shoot fire is the main yeah, thing that they so, do. Yeah, this is what I was going to get into as well. I, I can't remember if in the subsequent, like, 24 issues that he comes back to write, if there is, like, anything more that develops with them. But 
They are described several times by Chase's parents who created them as like the most powerful weapon they've ever devised. We never see them do anything except like be big MF and flamethrowers, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like... Maybe there was an idea to develop them further, but for all intents and purposes in these 18 issues, they are flamethrowers. Yes, it definitely has like Ben 10 vibes where it's like, you start with this thing unlocked, and that's like a, like sort of like a video game thing as well, where mm-hmm. you start with the one thing unlocked, and then like at a narratively convenient moment, you will develop like some new ability that you did not previously know that yeah. were in these fists. But the so, and the one sort of thing he learns to do is sort of project the flames can, like, in different shapes. It, yeah. Yes, like basically like whatever he thinks he can sort of create like mold the flames into but that yes as you said other than that they're basically just like flamethrower fists like does he even punch people with them i don't believe so i don't think so either and he also has x-ray goggles which mainly only get used one time for a gag where he looks at the girls in their underwear yeah And, and eventually he gets the like giant frog robot too Yes, that's more of a vehicle, though. It's yeah. not really a power. Um, <laughs> this is some real us uh, stuff. <laughs> Just getting into power sets, baby. Um, Molly, a.k.a. Bruiser. A.k.a. Princess Powerful. A.k.a. Princess Powerful is strong. Yes, and gets very tired if she is uh, too strong. Which is a good bit, to be yeah. fair. And and the origin of her strength... Yes, yeah. this is another thing I start like it feels like there are a lot of seeds being laid that don't that are you know like maybe we're meant to be picked up on later that just never do because yeah, her parents are like telepaths slash like, yes. tele telekinetics question mark and she kind of gets a similar sort of like purple energy charge around her to when they use their powers when she uses her strength and another thing is that they say in the book. That like like when she manifests her powers, it's like this is impossible because we scanned her for the X gene at birth and she didn't have it. Right. So there is like this element of mystery as to how exactly she has her powers and like what this means, yeah, which, which, which obviously is, is never, never resolved. Up on. And she like cameos in X Men books all the time because she's a mutant. <laughs> right. Um, and then Nico, she <laughs> she sort of like gets her powers by accident, I guess. I don't like. All of these things feel like they could be like explored or be revealed later. Mm-hmm. Like why so basically what happens is her her mother tries to stab her through the chest <laughs> yes. with, with a staff with the staff of one. With a blunt staff, the staff of one, which is like a magical staff where you can cast basically any spell, but you can only cast it once yeah. is the sort of gimmick of and it. So I, I, it's been a, like a couple weeks now since I originally read these issues, so I'm a, a little uh, foggy on it. Do they lay out that mechanic ever in these 18 issues? Because I seem to recall like getting weirdly far in before she even figured out that she was having trouble casting a spell that she'd already cast. And no, I, it I is... feel like they never explicitly say, you can only do it once. No, they do explain it because in the issue where they bust the robbers... Well, uh, what? <laughs> Buster Nut? <laughs> a joke that will never get old. Uh, in the in the it's the first issue of Teenage Wasteland where the character of Topher is introduced. Yeah. Um. So then they are foiling this uh, convenience store robbery. Mm-hmm. 
she tries to use the freeze spell and a bunch of pelicans fly out. Right. Uh, so it is established in like issue seven or eight. But even that, like even there, like they don't explain why. That no, she happened. she says she says it explicitly. She says like I think I can only use like it's also like a right. weird leap to make. But she's like I think I can only use each of my spells one time. One time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Let you, me tell you that a lot. Of times. Yeah, so Sister Grim is her code name based right, on her yes. uh, aim chat. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, and the other gimmick of the staff is that when her blood is shed, the staff reemerges from her body. Yes. Which is kind of a weird <laughs> message to be said. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it is very weird because it it yeah. So it's <laughs> it's so weird because she is like a goth character, but she doesn't like she never makes the connection in any kind of explicit way with self-harm. She has no like personal compulsion to self-harm or desire to self-harm. Yeah, Topher she's, like, is the very, one that makes the connection. Yeah, and, and, and like she's reluctant to even do it to get the staff to come out. Yeah, it just seems like as a concept, it's like kind of it's very clever in like a BKV way, but also like not really realized. Yeah, and and, and it, like I'm sure I'm sure out there somewhere he's probably got like some character um like notes that explain the like thematic like for Chase being kind of like the dumb <laughs> like the burnout character being the one whose parents are mad scientists and inheriting all this technology that he doesn't know how to use for Molly being like the smallest youngest one but who is also like the most physically powerful I'm sure Carolina something about teenage girls feeling like aliens sure um yeah and I think also like yeah, it's so strange because, like, it feels like there are a lot of sort of, like, conversational scenes or scenes where there isn't a lot of action necessarily happening, but they're usually more plot folk, like, the, like almost entirely plot focused. Yeah, they, they almost serve more as, like, recap pages sometimes where they're like, have you forgotten that our parents are supervillains? Yeah, and they don't get a lot of characterization. And in a way, I I was sort of thinking about, like, if why the last man had like had gone 12 issues and then they told him you're getting six more issues wrap this up like there would be so much stuff left on the table that was like seeded and never paid off which i think is like maybe not entirely the case here i don't know if he like had a full sort of game plan for this or if he had like a full 60 issue thing but given some of the plotting of why the last man and how effective that can sort of be and some of the payoffs which take like 10 20 30 issues to come out i do think and he sort of shows it here with the mole thing which is like a sort of 10 issue thing that eventually pays off but i do think that there was a lot more stuff that he was like i think he's just like sort of laying breadcrumbs almost for himself where it's like I'm going to give a bit of a mystery and I don't have to explain it right now. And then when I feel like it or when I sort of need something to come back to, I have like this thing which has already been set up that I can then pay off in some sort of way. It's very much like the Chris Claremont school of serialized storytelling where like every, every arc involves like dropping a seed for something that if you choose to come back to it in 20 issues, uh, it like potentially could be a rich, like, narrative vein and if you never come back to it like it cost you nothing to include it uh and and 
maybe there's like 12 people out there who remember it and are like, is he ever going to tell us what the deal was with that? And it's like, well, sorry. Who no. Zorn is? <laughs> uh, who Zorn is, is of course, uh, the, the climax of the book. <laughs> Zorn is, Zorn's truly wild. I've, I've read the Zorn Wikipedia page many times. <laughs> yes. Just like trying to wrap my head around this it. Zorn being from Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. Personally, I like it. It, it is a very controversial you like character. the reveal, yeah, like or the you reveal. like you like all of it? I, I mean, I like. Well, no, I don't like the retcon. <laughs> but uh, Zorn is a very cool character, and I liked the reveal, and I like that whole run. Personally, I think of you as sort of a son of Zorn. <laughs> the the, fo- the short-lived Fox sitcom. I am, I am aware. Starring Johnny Pemberton. Anyways. To go back to the the like Alex is a mole discussion, which I introduced uh, as we were sort of talking about the end of the first arc, does his plan make any sense? That's like why thing... why did he do? Why did he show the? <laughs> yeah, I, I sorry. Do, do you think his plan makes sense? I did he have a plan? That's the thing. Is like there's so many things. Like if you actually like went through every individual thing that happened. And we're like, and we're looking at it from that perspective, and we're like, why did he do this? Why did he do this? It doesn't really make any sense. Like, the first night, it's like, as soon as everyone fell asleep, he could just, like, collect all their weapons and then, like, kill them all. But yeah, it's, and so, like, if you look at it, if you look at it from any kind of logical view, it doesn't, it immediately falls apart. Yeah, I think it just suffers a bit from, like, he is like Vaughn wants him to have like the master planner. Like I knew everything that was going to happen. It's all according to my scheme, but also because of like the mystery of who the mole is, he can't really like tip any of it without making it super obvious that it's Alex. Yeah. I think that is, you've hit upon the problem there, which is the fact that like, because it has to, you know, like obviously like as soon as it gets mentioned, it's like, obviously this is going to be, a big reveal like because it's going to be the culmination of like a major plot point but the fact that it that it's necessitated to be a big reveal means that you have a major character in the book who the whole time is like just nefarious yes and but but also that they are acting normal and then later you have to like reveal like you have to set it up and you know he doesn't even really bother to try i don't think like I mean, do do you think he even knew, like who the mole like, was going to be when he yeah. seated? I do. do think he I even do think decided. Yeah, I do think that he. But if he had knew, then like there's so there. many different things that he could do. Like I don't know. I, yeah, I think it's a symptom of juggling this this reveal that he really wanted to do while also like being able to tell stories about like the whole group and have them yeah, internally you just, you make can't... sense and be fun. You can't have one of the six main characters of your book be, like, the complete opposite of what they're appearing to be. Because, like, any character moment and any any decision that they make needs to be taken from that perspective. And realistically, if he did do that, it would be a lot more obvious who the mole was, I imagine. Because, like, everything they said or did would be like in service of this yeah i think i think actually where the real problem of it kind of stems from is that he establishes that alex found out about the ceremony the prior year and has been planning the whole year because it seems like a lot of things like have to change on the fly 
Like he went, uh, he he mustn't have been planning to bring Nico originally because he he thinks she's like boring <laughs> and sucks until she opens the door and has become hot. And he's like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. But so it's like, have, were you planning already to bring Nico? And if so, why? Like, and why did you not tell your parents? Yeah, it, it just seemed it would have made more sense, I think, if he had found out at the same time as all the other kids and been like developing the plan as he went and and as he like figured out more about who the pride was and why they were doing the things that they were doing. Yeah, and like and he's so and another so yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> elements of it. So I'm just sort of like flipping through this issue here, seeing like what gets laid out as the facts of the situation. One of which is he deciphers a bunch of the pride's history and learns about a bunch of stuff about them, which means that for, I don't know how long the book lasts. I don't think that long in terms of like time scale. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably like a month, yeah, right? Something like that. But that he spends a significant amount of his time pretending to translate a book that he has already translated. I think, I think he is actually translating it because it's like split up, right? Yes, the, well, the, there's the idea that each decoder can only, like, decode a certain number of words or something to that effect. But the fact that, like, he already knows about, you know, he knows about the gibberim, which, yeah. by the way, I did not remember, and are insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, an insane element to introduce to a book like this, yeah. which we'll get into. We can talk about it later. But, oh, yes. And he also overhears... Yeah, he hears about the the planned betrayal by the non-human contingent of the pride. Yes. The mutants, so, the aliens, and... Uh... I think it's just the oh, four yeah, of yeah, them. It is, it, because it's the kids. four of them, they're two kids right. who will... <laughs> so, Inherit the so, earth. Yes. Let's, maybe let's we should the... briefly... Yeah, let's... <laughs> We're all over the place, which I think, you know, as a function of it being so short, like... Hopefully people prefer this to an issue-by-issue walkthrough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that that's necessary in this situation. So, the reveal that we get around, like, issue 12 or so is that there are creatures known as the Gibberim, who have existed since time eternal. They have six toes and six (laughs) fingers on each hand. Just as scripture said. Just as it is like it is like very like Bible apocrypha. Energy. Yeah. So it, it well, I think they say specifically like just like the, the creatures that are described in the Bible, right? Who are just like crazy giants who are intending to destroy the Earth. Or what do they want to do? They just so want to like, get their power. Yeah, they're they, kind of like Galactuses. They're yeah, they're kind of like elder gaudy figures, uh, and they want to destroy the Earth because that's their deal. <laughs> that's that's who they are. But I think they, I thought they wanted to be strong. <laughs> well, they need to be strong in order to do it. So the deal that they strike with the Pride is that they will like gather soul energy for them, and then when the time comes for the Give Room to destroy the world, they will not kill the pride uh six of the pride will be allowed to survive um right yes their their plan is just forever on the ruined earth (laughs) yes their plan is to destroy all of humanity and which you know it's a classic if i destroy all the like the humans are actually the bad guys and they're making the earth worse yeah we've seen this many times and then yes the six (laughs) The six who are, like, the most servitudinal 
to the Gibberim will be allowed to live, as you said. On uh, well, we don't know if the Earth is ruined. Like we don't know how yeah, the Gibberim are going to destroy humanity. Um, and so, at some point, one of the couples becomes pregnant, and after some discussion, they all agree that they will each have one child. And instead of having the Gibberim choose six from their twelve, each couple will send one child, and the chi- the children will be the ones who live on. But then we yes. later learn about several conspiracies where two sets of parents and they are planning to betray the others and bring their two children. Which makes sense. And I, and I do, I like that angle because I think there has to be some element that they think what they're doing is somehow justified. Yeah. And so I think the fact that they are doing this in service of their, like even the people who are traitors, like they're doing it in service of their own children. Yeah. So the fact that they are doing it in service of their children, I think... It, is a good idea, and... They have a Diesel-esque commitment to family. Oh, like Vin Diesel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking of the wrestler Kevin Nash. Like Shaq Diesel. Diesel. <laughs> I, there's... There's a recent tweet I saw where someone just said, I'm watching Fast Five with my girlfriend, and she keeps calling him Vince Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a great, a great, a great bit. But yes, and so then we eventually get this reveal that Alex has been behind it all. I'm just trying. I'm trying to lay out because, like, this is a, this is a real flip through the <laughs> flip through the overall plot. But he sort of, yeah, I don't know. So the whole the whole thing is that he is leading them to sort of unlock all of their weapons so that he can take them from them later. Right. There's, a, of course, a great splash, I think, at the end of issue 16, where he's, like, got all their stuff, yes. and it uh, looks very cool. Yes, that's a great moment. And really, there, as it turns out, there are only, like, three things he can actually take. Yeah. Which are the Fistigons, the, the Staff of goggles. One, yeah. and the Velociraptor, which, like, which he gets because Gert, <laughs> Gert is, quote-unquote, dead, and she says, if anything happens to me, you have to take orders from Alex. You must, you must, you must take orders from Alex. Another quick uh, Margaret reference for you uh-huh, there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so that that issue is sort of a mess. But also, like like we said, like is there a reveal that isn't a mess? Yeah, I, I don't think that there's like a good, clear... Like, I don't know who, who would have been the, the mole in a way that would have, like, been satisfying and made sense. Yeah, the reveal just has to be, like, I was lying about everything, and I was a completely different person from the one you saw, like, in the preceding 15 issues. Which just, yeah, which just inherently doesn't work. And then also, there's a really, (laughs) there's a slightly ludicrous fake-out in issue, I think at the end of issue 15, leading into issue 16, where we get the cliffhanger that it's like, Chase is dead. And then it's like three pages later, it's like, I did CPR and he's alive. <laughs> which is just like the absolute worst kind of comic fake out where it's like, where you have the last page, literally the last page is like, this character is dead. And then like four pages into the next issue, it's like, this character is alive. Okay. And I, yeah. And I had forgotten that it was a fake out. And I was like, oh, like, this is actually like a pretty interesting direction to take. To, like, kill one of them off. I mean... <laughs> Which they eventually do, <laughs> yes. In a, in a great sequence, Alex uh, 
<laughs> the Gibrim show up because their soul sacrifice has like been destroyed, and so they they must take a soul. Which I don't understand. Wouldn't killing out like if the point is that oh, there's so much lore that like they just sort of been <laughs> dancing around. But so the lore is that every year they have to sacrifice. Oh, but it has to be like a young woman, yeah, for unspecified reasons. Well, the the other thing is they lose the yeah they lose the young woman's soul that they brought. Yes, that's what I that's what I'm one. getting at. With that every year they have to sacrifice a young woman in order to. Like, I don't know, power up the giver him mm-hmm. um, for twenty five years. None of it makes much sense. And then Alex is um yes. Yeah, so then, uh, what's her face? Molly mm-hmm. breaks the like chest that held the soul inside, and they're like, "Who did this?" And Alex is like, "It like I'm taking responsibility. It was me." <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then he, is, <laughs> he is promptly incinerated. <laughs> In it, a great it's like moment. a weirdly like both a like big laugh panel for me while also being like oh <laughs> it is extremely funny and like <laughs> yeah like it's almost like that's the way to handle it because like it's such a weird reveal that's like it kind of makes sense that it has this weird anticlimactic ending but yes let's i'm just looking back here to see because i you know, yes. we haven't talked about Teenage Wasteland. We haven't really. Uh, I also want to talk briefly, just like an, an art note. The colorist changes a couple times throughout. I wonder if you if you noticed. But if you like compare, so I think issues one through six are all one colorist. Maybe seven is as well. Yeah, I did. I I noticed at some points. I mean, I mainly noticed because the uh penciler changes in issues in the lost and found issues which i think are 11 and 12 um so we could talk about that here we get the a new penciler here takeshi miyazawa who is My a boy. canadian born is he of japanese extraction i would imagine yes i believe so yes and who is known for his mong sort of a manga inspired sensibility Very to his art so, yeah uh i know him best for his work with Sean McKeever, uh, who of course did Sentinel, while well, the two they they worked on Sentinel together, and then subsequently did Spider Man Loves Mary Jane, which was two right. mini series and then like a twenty issue ongoing series that was intended to like get girls interested in comics and is kind of like a slice of life romantic dramedy starring Mary Jane about like her travails uh, navigating life as a high school student. Uh, it's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> it's like I've heard the, it's good. It is. It is great. It's funny. So he also uh, coming into and as a result of the books that he wrote for uh, Marvel Tsunami, garnered a reputation as like an authentic writer of teenage characters. But I think is is a better authentic writer of teenage characters than uh, than Vaughn is. His like independent comic, The Waiting Place, is really good. Uh, and, but anyways, yes. So I know Takeshi Miyazawa primarily for that book, and I think he also did the art on Mech Cadet U with Greg Pak, which is like a yep. sort of like Gundam style giant robot pilot academy book um, that's really good. Yeah, he's a he's a like kind of a go to guy for 
when they when they want that uh, manga feel because I would say especially of the tsunami artists he is like one of the most sort of obviously manga stylized and uh, he does a good job I always like it yeah so Although I do I, not I, like I was gonna say I, th- I think that's a controversial opinion I think most people do not care for him <laughs> I mean I and I was I was just now looking at some of like you know just stuff that shows up on google images when you search his name and i do like like especially like his sort of like more like character portrait stuff i like a lot but i just this style and i think the problem or maybe a significant part of the problem is the coloring because i was just about to say his work really lives or dies based on the colorist it's hard to color manga art style because if people don't know manga is usually in black and white and it's rarely full colored and it's rarely like like there'll be like colored splash pages and things like that but you i don't think it's very common at all for you to see like a full colored chapter of manga it's no. usually in black and white yeah. and i think that that flat style makes a lot more sense for the art because like yeah it's just when you're trying to add like that sort of three dimensionality and texture to it I think it just ends up looking sort of absurd. Like there are there are panels in the so he he draws like we said issues eleven and twelve, and I think there are some panels in it which just look like it's like oh like this literally looks like a like a young person like did like a manga style drawing of a character. Yeah, it, it can be a little uh, deviant art. Yes, exactly, and like like especially like when they're when. Like, there are some moments that have, like, clearly, clearly, like, manga-inspired poses. Like, I I first noticed that there was a new penciler because in one of the early pages of issue number 11... Talking about like, leaning on Cloak with her arm up? No, I was was talking about some of Molly's, like, facial expressions and poses. Oh, the photograph of her? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and also, like... Like, winking? (laughs) Yes, and, like, there's there's a part in an early scene where it's, like... She is like doing like the embarrassed face where the her two fingers are like going like like the classic oh yeah classic manga (laughs) yeah the classic manga embarrassed face and like so that I'm just like whoa like it's so jarring to see that like in an American comic especially one that's colored like this like and so I I'm willing to put a lot of it on the coloring and also like I just think that even though it was under the tsunami imprint, like I don't think a manga style particularly suits this book. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's a stylistic thing for sure. Like I said, I like Miyazawa. So the, the art doesn't really bother me throughout. Um, but uh, yeah, I know a lot of people are not crazy about it. Let's talk quickly just well, about the character. Hold on. I want to finish my color talk <laughs> because the colorist is, uh, so it switches partway through the, colorist for the first i believe he does all six issues in the first six is brian reber uh and then christina strain takes over after that and i feel that when it comes to alfona's art she is a much better fit like i feel like the art instantly takes a big step forward like just comparing some of the panels and pages from number six to number seven I, I feel like there's a noticeable difference and that it is a very positive one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I did notice this and I, I like, especially like, there are some, she really seems to like sort of like interesting camera angles. Like, I know a lot of times Alex's dad 
is like shot from either a high or a low angle like where he always has like the sort of imposing foreboding look about him and i do think that the colors work well in those situations and like there's a there's a great splash page of like the 12 pride members uh in issue seven which looks really good but i mean like yeah i mean i i i don't quite have the vocabulary to talk about like the color differentiation i think i think that so christina strain is obviously using digital colors i think brian reber is as well but I have I have a hard time putting my finger on why exactly. Don't fear the reaper. <laughs> on why exactly I feel that there is like a big difference as well. I guess it's it's just something about how she uses gradients, maybe, and like and gets like light effects that. Yeah, the 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 lighting and the use of shadow was another thing I noticed that looks notably different. Yeah, I think I think it's particularly skin tones for whatever reason. I prefer how how she does skin tones. Yes, and speaking of skin tones, uh-huh. I, right, is, that, it, is it time I, for us to talk about how Chase calls Alex brother? <laughs> <laughs> A good bit. There's something else, Chase. Oh yes, Chase says, "quote When he is attacking a group of policemen, this is for Rodney oh, King, y'all." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just an incredible line. Uh, it's like Sinbad style, undeniably, but. <laughs> <laughs> that was a real bomb um but, yeah. <laughs> just some just some jingle all the way jokes um but yes i think i think that that's intentional and i do think that's very funny oh yeah it definitely is it's, uh, alex calls it out right before it happens it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yes, the main thing that I want to talk about is sort of like the the cast and the diversity of the cast. So you know, why was already ongoing at this point, where sort of the the core group is two thirds women. Obviously, like it's going to be a female focused book. Um, two thirds women and has a black woman and an Asian woman, which I imagine. I, I and I guess like comics have always been okay about diversity of characters. <laughs> To some, you know, like they they can be a little tokenized, but I think like because comics are so focused on like sort of <laughs> you're you're stroking your beard here, I see, mm-hmm. and you can talk you can talk about the the truth of the matter shortly. <laughs> um, but I I feel like you know like I'm thinking of characters like Psylocke, where it's like which who is a whole like kettle of <laughs> or can of worms unto herself. Uh, am I just talking myself into a hole? Here? Should I just like, should I just let you go? I just need the no, fact share that... your thoughts on Psylocke, the white woman trapped in an Asian body. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Oh my gosh. Oh boy. But yes, I, I don't mean necessarily the portrayal of the characters, but I think because comics are so focused around like original character designs and like sort of like every character being unique and right. like notable like if you in have some way five white guy, like for example when you see a group shot of like batman and all the robins out of costume the only indicator as to like which character is which is like the height it's like batman is the tallest one and then in descending order by age <laughs> they go down and otherwise are completely indistinguishable right and so i think like having that sort of like visual specialness about a character like you you want that and so there is like even if it's not for any reason beyond that there's more of a an incentive to have a character look different than a standard white guy yeah i think it's more important in a book like this where almost nobody is ever wearing a costume especially the main cast 
whereas like normally costumes are are just used to differentiate between characters. <sighs> yeah, I think there have been prior to like obviously more recently there's been a lot more of a push to like promote the characters who have like more diverse backgrounds into more visible roles and to create more diverse characters. But I think previously to like this decade, there have not been a lot of characters unless there was like a particular creator like Chris Claremont was a guy who was usually pretty to to go back to the Claremont. Well, who usually wanted to include like more diverse casts, but even in those cases, like, the ways in which he accomplished that, see Psylocke, see, like, yes. white characters who are transformed into indigenous characters in the Demon Bear saga and start wearing, like, headdresses all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like even, even when people from, like, places of good intentions wanted to have, like, more diverse casts, it wasn't always handled particularly well. And then when you look at, like, the power, like, heavy hitter groups like Avengers and Justice League, are almost always like six or like five white guys, one white woman, and like an alien, <laughs> a green guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yes, to be clear, I, I was not defending. Like, I was not saying that comics were in any way like at the forefront of like diversity or like good racial politics. And obviously, that's I think that's more sided on the creator side, where it's like if you have primarily a bunch of white men writing a group of women and people of color then obviously you're not going to get an ideal perspective on the matter yeah like editorial has never been great either like there's there's like famous cases like sunspot who's conceived of as like afro-brazilian in his origin has just like gradually had his skin tone like lightened over the years to now basically just be a white guy and like there was a colorist who made, like, a comic essay a few years ago about being asked to, like, lighten characters' skin tones. So, like, editorial definitely has some some influence on that as well. Yeah. Um, one angle, and, and we can even cut this out just because, like, I don't think... Well, I mean, I'll, I'll see, we'll see what you think. There were some comments I saw that were some some contemporaneous, some later on, that we're framing it as well the that the one black character is the one who turns out to be the villain and i was wondering like if you had any thoughts on that because to to me like a the fact that he's sort of like the leader of the book maybe mitigates that to some extent even if it does like like i don't know <laughs> and yeah. this, is a, this is a hard thing to talk about and we don't necessarily have the appropriate amount of perspective on it maybe it's it's like yeah it's not ideal but it's also a book where like the black character outsmarts all the white characters yeah that's I, that was sort of I, i'm a little more i think if there's an issue to take it's more with his parents the the one black family being like and what were they before uh, the jim Rufa? oh they like carjackers <laughs> holding up yeah. a convenience store interesting but yes and so but they're like, like we said, like it is, it's for, so after Alex is incinerated, like at the end of the book, it's four to five women. I guess there is only one character of color at that point, but only, only one character, a classic BKV move, only one character being like a white male does feel like a, a choice on his part and does feel like something that has been like important to him throughout his work. And also, and another thing that gets teased in issue 18 that 
is never picked up on is this like romantic tension between Nico and Carolina. Oh, that will be. Did you catch up this? On. Oh, it gets picked yeah. up on in the next volume. I I always forget that like because so is is there anything we want to talk about within the book itself before we sort of talk about the broader context? Um, I don't th- just just like on the note of the relationships. I feel like the 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 pace of the book is damaging to the relationship between Nico and Alex, which unfolds in a very bizarre way and then has to kind of like carry the weight of the emotional climax of the book in some ways. It it bad. <laughs> I guess I'll have to <laughs> yeah. say about that. And and it's it's hard there I it feels like there are a lot of problems and like maybe some of it is because like it's a condensed time scale, so like we don't get to see something develop over the course of like months or like even I yeah, I just think the cast is a little too big where you have to like spend time fleshing everybody out. But as a result, like we see Alex and Nico talk to each other one on one like three times, and most of those times are for them to be like, "What's going on?" Yeah, and in terms of the characterization, like I mean, like in terms of people who get like character development, like it really feels like the majority of the screen time goes to Alex and Nico, and then to a lesser extent, Gert. And then the other two just kind of get side. Like, Carolina definitely feels like the least, like, explored of any character. And Molly is mostly just comic relief. And and I don't know, like, I don't know what it is. Because it doesn't, like, even in the first, like, four issues, like, the first four issues move quite slowly in terms of, like, how the whole thing develops. Like, by the, I think by the end of issue four, we've only, like... We're only just getting to like half of the group having any kind of like powers manifested but yeah it's just that there's too much happening yeah like, i think it's it's because like all of the characters are being pulled whole cloth you have to establish like like you it basically takes a full issue to establish each person's like family's area of specialty and like what their powers are and tell the story of like going to their house and getting stuff like it's a, it is a lot to fit into one issue to to just like have to tackle each one individually. So it makes sense that it takes kind of six issues to finish the origin story of the whole group. Yeah, but but I feel like that's not in that what you're specifically talking about. But I think that the, the issue of like sort of like creating characters of whole cloth like that's a thing in Y as well. Maybe it's just that yeah, Y it feels like <laughs> yes, that's true. And they true. get a lot more space to eventually have their their yeah but it's but it, i i don't think that that's just a number of issues thing like i think it's maybe just a plotting thing that he's writing a superhero comic so he feels like there has to be more like plot driven stuff and action i i'm just paging through i'm looking at issue five right now just a sort of random issue like this is just all like either action or like there's there's one scene that is like less action focused where it's mostly just them planning about the action that's going to take place later in the issue. And and all of these sort of characterization moments end up being it's almost it's like it's a bit it's a bit RPG-ish where the character development you get is just how each character reacts differently to this like specific set of circumstances. And it's it's all like it's all verbal to be clear. Like it's not their actions, but it's just like like and like, how does this person say that they're behind Alex and like they're ready to rock? Mm-hmm. It's like and like someone's like, 
well, I guess I'll do it. And then the like boisterous person is like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And then the other person is like, if you're doing it, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> it's all just different. Like, it's like everyone's just saying the same thing. And it's just like slightly filtered through the personality that's been set up. Right. There's a Michael Jackson joke. <laughs> just <laughs> the second. Uh, oh, oh, right. Something about spending a night at the Neverland Ranch. Something like yes. that. Yes. Which was crazy because so I, I watched Men in Black 2 yesterday, uh-huh. like one does. Um, maybe that's why I brought up Men in Black 3 earlier. Back in time. Um, back in time. Um, but in Men in Black 2, Michael Jackson makes a cameo mm-hmm. as, like, uh, the joke is that he's an alien, but also he is, like, well, obviously. I mean, it's Michael Jackson. Come on. In, like, the early 2000s. Uh and, like, the joke that he's alien, but there, there's also a funny bit where he keeps talking to, like, Chief Zed and wants to become a, a man in black himself. And his keeps going, like, I could be Agent M. <laughs> Not <laughs> which Agent is, MJ. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, which is a great bit. But then, but that came out in 2002. And this, like, these early issues are from 2003 and, like, 2004 at the latest. And it's just crazy that, like, from in that, like, one year to 18 month span the like the michael jackson experience was like going from he's cameoing in your movie and like the joke is just that he's a weird guy <laughs> and then like one year later it's just like yes this famous pedophile that we all know about yeah uh i do feel like it would be an interesting like game to be like date this based on how Michael this cultural Jack- depiction yeah. of MJ <laughs> date this within a year based on how Michael Jackson is like presented in this piece of media <laughs> oh um there's a West Wing joke yeah walk fast there's, talk fast there's lots of yeah there's lots of culture pop culture references of course there's lots of uh well actually factoids yes it's it's not quite as much of a it's not quite as heavy as wild last man but uh, wait did i already mention this sort of the idea that teenagers like it almost makes sense to have that dialogue coming from teenagers because like they're so performative already yes but yes uh there's a reference there's a, a kind of funny like oblique reference to arnold schwarzenegger being under the control of the pride oh yeah they used the spine of Agamotto to install it, <laughs> that muscle-bound buffoon as governor. The spine of Agamotto is a better joke than uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger being governor, for sure. Yes. But yeah, th- those are just a few. <laughs> just a few just that a sampler. I wrote down as a good bit. But yeah, so overall, it seems like you agree with me in terms of general impressions that this this does not really hold up, even though it was a book that was uh, like slight, it's somewhat like, acclaimed it's like, at the yeah, time. Yeah, it's a name maker for him, and I think it does still have a lot of fans. This has never really been one that has connected for me. Like, it's always been pretty low on the pole of BKB stuff ever, like since my first reading. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure why exactly. Like, it, it has good plot momentum but in some ways is like too busy i just don't really feel any like i think the issue is that why the last man is a very character driven book ex machina is like not as character driven i wouldn't say but still pretty character driven and like i think just tackles like some of the superpower stuff in a more interesting way 
I just don't feel any identification or like affection for any of these characters and don't really care what happens to them. Yes. Um, so yeah, it, it's like, it's fine, but it's not, it's never been like, yeah, even like maybe a top 10 Brian K. Vaughn book for me. Yeah. And I remember because I, I must've read this probably when in my early teenage years and I remember like being into this and I'm just wondering like why like why did I like this? I think <laughs> like, there not, must not, be like, something about it that does connect with teenagers for yeah, some reason. Yeah, and like reason. not because it's bad, but just because like it just seems strange that like like it's a fine book, but it's like what exactly is drawing people in? Like is it just that it's sort of operating within the superhero genre but also has these sort of manga-ish elements because I was I would say more into manga than comic books yeah during the age i would have read this i do think it's very like distinct from some of the other things that marvel was doing even like kind of around that time like i was just thinking before we started recording i was kind of musing about like what what like depictions of teenagers have been like in in comics that would make like this be held up as like at last like realistic teenagers and it is kind like kind of true that you go from like Again, Chris Claremont or like um, George Perez, uh, or not to not George Perez, uh, Marv Wolfman writing Teen Titans, um, like two two guys who would write a lot of teenage characters, but like you know guys who are in their forties and writing kind of like very soap operatic storylines. Who the teenage characters always felt like they were being approached a bit more with kind of like a paternal affection rather than an actual like depiction of teens, right? And then in the 90s, you either get, like, kind of the the image creators sort of era, um, like, everything is radical and extreme, and, like, it's less focused on being, like, here's a, a realistic depiction of teenage life, and or being, like, imagine if an 18-year-old had a gun that had eight barrels. Uh, or, <laughs> or you get more, like, kind of the, like, the... I guess like sort of the art house side of comics, which wasn't really telling stories. About like very teenagers. naturalistic. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I guess I, ghost world would be yeah. kind of like the, the one about teens in the nineties, but I'm, I'm thinking of like, what are like mainstream nineties comics? And it's like uh, Starman, like Sandman, like there's lots of good comics from the nineties. I just don't really think of them as being like teenager stories. And the comics that were like about teens were much more in the, in the like extreme sort of vein. Yeah. And then, and, and then yeah, you get so, to this where it's like, it, it again, naturalistic is not the word I would use, but recognizable for a teenager yeah, it's, for it's, sure. It's it's Buffy-ish in a big way. Like yeah. and there's a direct reference to Buffy in the book, but like that that's sort of like it's funny, like it has quips and it portrays teenagers, like you said, like not in a naturalistic way, but maybe in a sort of a realistic way like yeah you can see you can see sort of being like oh yeah if i was in this sort of like life-changing situation i wouldn't i wouldn't be talking like how kitty pride talks in an x-men comic i would be like probably trying to cope with it by like cracking jokes and like making references to the show that like me and my friends would try to get through it in kind of a similar way yeah and it's like you know, like Brian K. Vaughn, like with any writing, it's like with any of his writing, it feels like it's like everyone is just like, and this is true of a lot of writing, I guess, that like everyone is just sort of like preternaturally funny and like everyone like knows yeah. every reference. They're all very cool and very smart and very funny and very quick. 
Yeah, and I think even, like, even at this point, the only other book I can think of kind of immediately that would be doing a similar sort of, like, you know, realistic, relatable teenage characters in, like, a really popular book would be Ultimate Spider-Man. Right. It's, like, kind of setting the bar at this time for for that sort of thing. But even that is, like, still, in some ways, it's very much in, like, the spirit of classic Spider-Man. And I think that this feels very kind of, like, alt-culture-ish, sort of, like very very different from like what marvel normally does very like sort of breath of fresh air in a lot of ways even beyond like the whole ultimate line was supposed to be that but i think this even goes like a step beyond because it's so removed from like you know you can't imagine captain america or spider-man really showing up in this book even though captain america does show up and at the beginning (laughs) well that's not the real (laughs) captain america please Yeah, and we can, I know we've already sort of zoomed out of the larger plotting picture, but sort of how the book wraps up after Alex gets incinerated um, is that, is it that they they take this like amphibious? Yeah, the like frogger thing. Yeah, it's a frog bot and manage to escape while the gibbrim oh yes and the whole thing sort of like collapses there is another like weirdly funny laugh panel where (laughs) they're like escaping and Gert is like oh no our parents are gone and carolina's like you don't know that they were really smart and really strong (laughs) and (laughs) next panel is just like boom (laughs) a huge explosion uh yes so the gibbrim killed the pride and then they are all sent off to various sort of... Like, but I do think it is sort of left a little bit ambiguous. I like, guess so. If, I'm pretty sure they never they, come back. But if, if they had come back, like, I would be like, that's impossible. Like, this is so stupid. Like, we saw, like, it's not like we see them, like, get shot in the head or anything. Like, we, right. it's just, it's a classic, like, there's a bunch of rubble. And if they were like, oh, we had a force field belt, then I would just be like, yeah, okay. Right. Um, but yes, how it ends is... So the the kids they manage to survive. The whole business of the pride gets outed to everyone, and they sort of get split off into different like foster homes yeah. and different and boarding different schools and all this like stuff. Situations. But then they all meet back up together at the <laughs> the James Dean Memorial at the Griffith Observatory, every teenager's favorite spot. Yeah. And then they and they so they free old lace who has like been taken away and they get the frog robot and they sort of just piece off together and there, there's a good bit where the, the the final issue which is issue 18 being called 18 i thought was a nice touch and feels very vaughnian yeah that it's like now they're Cutting adults age, even though yes only <laughs> even though they're 18. they are still like 60 yeah. <laughs> but but yes and and it has this james dean quote <laughs> but let's let's zoom out a little bit I'm just looking. Oh, yeah. And and the other thing that I wanted to talk about from the perspective of like sort of the quality of this book, and maybe maybe it is just that we're not teenagers and we connect with the story about like the guy in his mid 20s <laughs> who feels slightly aimless <laughs> compared to the story about like the teenagers. But so this is so the last issue is cover dated November 2004. So around the same time as this, Why the Last Man is doing like the Sons of Arizona, the first arc with Other Beth. Yeah. And like here so Hero's Journey is the issue that is the same <laughs> date as the last issue, which I think sort of very starkly shows the compare the point of comparison between the quality of each book. Yes. And again, like 
I don't I don't think this is a bad book. Like I un, I would understand if someone liked this book. It's just sort of strange. And maybe part of it is like the that it got canceled and it's a bit of like the one season, the Firefly or the Freaks and Geeks thing, which was happening a lot at that time. Right. I think about it like those are all around the same time that because something was canceled, it gets elevated because it's like and that's almost James Dean in a way. When you think about it, and I'm making a lot of connections now, oh, aren't I? Go. Yeah, the it does of, have like a sort of gone too soon. Yes, and even the the title of the last story arc, which I didn't realize, and they so I I know I ask this literally every time we talk about this, but they they knew by the time yeah, by the yeah, time yeah, they're yeah. writing the last story arc, they know it's getting canceled, Definitely. and so and the title of that arc is "The Good Die Young," <laughs> which is. Which is a good bit. Um, and so maybe that's part of why it was sort of elevated in this way. But yes. And Although, so, but, but like, it got another 24-issue run that they already also knew about. Like, I'm right. pretty sure and, the, like, end note of number 18 is like, check back in, like, six months when we start up again. <laughs> yes, this is, so this is what we've been alluded, been alluding to frequently, which is that it was cancelled with issue 18, and then several months later... It doesn't even seem like it was cancelled so much as, like, they were they were probably originally told, like, we're axing the tsunami line, so all of the books are getting cancelled. But then they were right. like, actually, like, as, as we also have alluded to, like, the digests for Runaways are selling well. It's, like, critically acclaimed. The fans love it. So we're still going ahead, but, like, we want you... Uh, and Alphona to like start working on a new like a new series and like it'll go on hiatus for a little bit and we'll bring it back with like no more no more tsunami imprint it just like in the in the regular lineup yeah and and another thing um sorry I'm just browsing here different articles and stuff but another thing that might have lent itself to getting like a lot of attention is the fact that it's a group of original characters and maybe that doesn't feel like quite as big of a deal to us like who have like and but i also feel like we've mostly been like sort of working on like the fringes like vertigo and stuff yeah this this is i think technically the first comic we've covered that is set in the main universe of either marvel or dc which is right weird. well swamp isn't swamp thing technically oh, yeah, in the yeah, in the main dc uh, universe Oh no no because I'm thinking of uh, of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which very firmly is in the regular DC universe. See, yeah, Swamp Thing is kind of tricky because, like, yes, but and mostly only references other Vertigo stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yes, and so like like there was something I'm seeing here, like then this is all stuff from around like the time he left the book that you know like like Wizard said it was. The, one of the best original concepts from Marvel in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it's like maybe the just the central premise of like a group of teenagers whose parents are villains. Like that's that's a good hook to a book yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely got a good elevator pitch. Yes. And so this uh, I'm just reading straight from Wikipedia here in classic podcast fashion. Please don't come for me. Uh, the person who's reading the Brian K. Vaughn biography. <laughs> uh, but yes, that the tsunami imprint... Uh, the series ended at issue 18. After the series sale in Digest, Vaughn pitched the idea again to Marvel, who accepted it. And that's when we get the volume two, which, come, like you said, it comes out, what, six months later? Something like that. Uh, yeah, August 2004 to February 2005 is the layoff. 
So did <laughs> you had you had sales information about the? Yeah, I mean it's it's nothing nothing too shocking. So like for example, number eighteen is the one hundred thirty fifth best selling comic with eighteen thousand six hundred thirteen. It's been pretty steady around that number for the whole time. I was looking earlier at like more around like eleven and twelve, and they were doing like nineteen thousand. Um, so it's got like a pretty steady and consistent audience um, that probably could have sustained it either way. Compare with the number one comic that month being uh, Superman Batman, which sold one hundred thirty nine thousand. So <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty far down the list there. But that was the same month that the Volume 2 Digest came out, and that was the number 11 trade. And the things ahead of that are Ultimate X-Men is the number one seller, also Brian K. Vaughn. Actually, this is quite a fascinating lineup. Chronicles of Conan, number uh, Volume 5 from Dark Horse, and then Helsing, so there's manga in the top three. Essential Supervillain Team-Up from Marvel. What is that? I do not know. Um, I'm gonna open that in a new tab. Oh, it's a Marvel Essentials. So the the we you you would be familiar with the Essentials because we had a few, but those were like the yeah, black the, and white, the black and white like phone books that were on newsprint that uh, would collect like huge slots of issues for like twenty bucks. Yeah, it would be like twenty issues yeah. for twenty bucks, and they were in black and white. So the supervillain essential supervillain team up collects giant size supervillain team up number one to two, supervillain team up number one to fourteen and sixteen to seventeen. Which is which is what? Do not know. Never heard of this series. Uh, Avengers one fifty four to one fifty six, Champions number sixteen, and Astonishing Tales number one to eight. It's like a Silver Age. Uh, it looks like. Yeah, started in 1975, initially teamed up Doctor Doom and the Submariner. So it's, I guess, sort of like a... It is interesting. An anti-hero kind of book. Yeah, like Fantastic Four villains team up book. It's funny because the credited names on the front are Stanley, Roy Thomas. Like, Roy Thomas is a 70s guy, but Bill Everett, Wally Wood. Those are not guys that I think of as being, like, 70s creators as much. Yeah, um... But anyways, yeah. So it seems like it seems like it was mainly Doctor Doom and Submariner, and then it, there was also Doctor Doom and Red Skull. There's one Doctor Doom and Magneto, and then Red Skull and Hate Monger. <laughs> Not a great name. Oh. <laughs> I mean, sounds like an ideal partnership. So. <laughs> oh, do you know about? Oh, I think I did know about the Hate Monger. Is he the? He's a Captain America villain as well, right? I think he started as a Fantastic Four villain. Hold on, let me show you just the this cover that features the hate monger. Here we go. Oh, I'm oh, sending is you. He, he's a clone of Hitler, I believe. <laughs> yes, that's correct. And if you will kindly view the image that I've sent to you, you will see the hate monger's costume. <laughs> and yes, he is just a KKK guy who is purple with an H on his forehead. With an H on his forehead. I think for hate. I've been trying to find this issue for a long time, but I believe that there is an issue where of Captain America where they have like discovered more Hitler clones created by the hate monger and like They've they've allowed one to just like live a normal life and not know that he's a clone of Hitler and <laughs> Captain Mark or Captain America just like goes to hang out with him periodically and like check in and make sure that he's not uh, not getting too Hitlery and they like 
they like hang out and paint <laughs> <So>. together. <laughs> but I can't remember. Yes. I feel like it's a real thing that I read, but I've never been able to find it. Yes, yeah, so I'm seeing it here. It's it apparently happened during the heroic age, and we can <laughs> shortly after this we can talk about your novel because <laughs> <laughs> because this character's name is Edmund Heidler. <laughs> <laughs> Who is a painter, as you said. And would you like would you like to talk about the novel you're reading? Uh, you're of course referring to uh, my my novel about Alphonse Hilter, who is your an, allegorical uh, work. Yes, he is an allegory for a certain political figure who shall remain <laughs> nameless. I really want uh, you know the audience to see if they can draw their own <laughs> conclusions about who he might be but you know he's a, he's a talented orator who uh, finds himself leading leading a nation through some turbulent times <laughs> oh truly one of your dumber jokes that i am <laughs> constantly tickled by uh <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was an issue of the, of the Brubaker run, but I could not remember it for whatever reason. Anyways, um, it's <laughs> it seems like we're deviating a little bit. Oh, just a bit. Um, so is there is there anything else we? Oh, another thing that I meant to bring up is that uh, Molly's example. So her example of a bad mutant is Magneto. Like she's saying, like I'm not going to be a bad mutant. I'm going to be a good mutant. So she's saying, I'm not going to be a bad mutant like Magneto. I'm going to be a good mutant like Dupe. <laughs> Which is <laughs> that is uh, an excellent, excellent pull a, for the time. Just a great BKV bit. Um. So is there anything else that uh, needs talking about before we? I don't believe so. I forgot to mention that uh, Adrian Alfona also penciled uh, Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane for a little while. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think they also, didn't they also work together? Did, did Adrian Alfona work on Ms. Marvel? Yes, he was the uh, series originating uh, artist with G. Willow Wilson for the Kamala Khan version of Ms. Marvel, I think would be his other big claim to fame. Well, there you have it. More like Adrian Balboa, am I right? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Adrian! Remember? In the movie? Uh-huh. Keep going. Give, uh- us, <laughs> give us more Stallone. Okay, here we go. Um, hey, uh, I, I need to go beat up some meat, but uh, can we hang out uh, later, Adrian? Beat up some meat. No, wait, no, wait, no. <laughs> no, I beat punch, punch steaks. <laughs> For some reason, my friend lets me come in here. And just just batter these sides of beef. He's tenderizing them. I don't know. <sighs> I, I, I give it a good. six. <laughs> okay, okay. We're working on the on the upper side of the bracket, certainly. Um, but we are we're going off the rails in this app. Overall, I think that we're we're on the same page. That you know, there's there are elements to like here, but not a ton to latch on to. I don't think i've ever read volume two so we'll see where that leads us i definitely have and i am i'm eager to get into it again because i was i i simultaneously remember nothing about it and also there was a bunch of stuff that i was expecting to like have come up in this first volume that didn't so i was like oh i guess they cover that in volume two and i just do remember more about it than i thought and it it all just kind of runs together but yeah, I'll be interested to see if any of our, our stuff about things that were unresolved in this first 18-issue run come back up. I know some of them do. But yeah, looking forward to it. 
We're doing all twenty-four, right? Yeah, Ooh. that's what you that's what you said. That is what I and said. we're also and we're of course also doing the uh, the television series. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's only it's only thirty-three episodes. It's thirty-three episodes. Yeah, there were three seasons. Oh, they're hour long. Ooh, <laughs> it's crazy that that lasted as long as like. How long did Agent Carter last? Two seasons of like ten yeah. episodes each. Yeah, like it outlasted Agent Carter. A lot Marvel of t- Marvel Agent television. Carter. Very strange, but that is going to do it. I me thinks for this episode of Got the Runs. Uh, please remember to. I was gonna say fist us on oh. iTunes, but I was thinking about the gauntlets. Uh-huh. I'm Adrian. It's not what you think. <laughs> Please. I'm not intentionally making inappropriate humor. I'm not, Adrian, I'm not working blue. You gotta believe me, Adrian. Please sacrifice <laughs> the soul of a young woman to give us power on your preferred podcasting go. platform. I've heard five stars on Apple Podcasts is helpful for some reason. <laughs> uh, Ad- Adrian, I'm sort of shifting into a bit of a... Um, hey, you're not doing Stallone anymore. I'm shifting into a Warburton, who is also in oh, Men in yeah, Black too. There you go. That is who it is. Hey, Peter. <laughs> Adrian. I love my wife, Bonnie. <laughs> oh, this is crazy. Uh, but, of course, uh, next week we will be covering Runaways Volume 2, issues number 1 to number 24. But until then, as always... Wait, sh- oh yeah, to be continued. I forgot for a second. To the world. Oh, we're not. Deuces to the world is not becoming a regular. Uh, I said deuces to the world uh, on a work Zoom call this week, and I was like, oh, people <laughs> I hope people aren't listening to my podcast. Uh, I do hope that. Other than you, of course, if you're listening. Yes, and also the episode is over, so goodbye. Bye!